Chapter Nine of the White Company. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clive Catterall. The White Company by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Nine: How Strange Things Befell in Minstead Wood. The path which the young clerk had now to follow lay through a magnificent forest of the very heaviest timber, where the giant boles of oak and of beech formed long aisles in every direction, shooting up their huge branches to build the majestic arches of nature's own cathedral. Beneath lay a broad carpet of the softest and greenest moss, flecked over with fallen leaves, but yielding pleasantly to the foot of the traveller. The track which guided him was one so seldom used that in places it lost itself entirely among the grass, to reappear as a reddish rut between the distant tree-trunks. It was very still here in the heart of the woodlands. The gentle rustle of the branches and the distant cooing of pigeons were the only sounds which broke in upon the silence, save that once Alan heard far off a merry call upon a hunting-bugle and the shrill yapping of the hounds. It was not without some emotion that he looked upon the scene around him, for, in spite of his secluded life, he knew enough of the ancient greatness of his own family to be aware that the time had been when they had held undisputed and paramount sway over all that tract of country. His father could trace his pure Saxon lineage back to that Godfrey Mulf, who had held the manors of Bistern and of Minstead at the time when the Norman first set mailed foot upon English soil. The afforestation of the district, however, and its conversion into a royal domain, had clipped off a large section of his estate, while other parts had been confiscated as a punishment for his supposed complicity in an abortive Saxon rising. The fate of the ancestor had been typical of that of his descendants. During three hundred years their domains had gradually contracted, sometimes through royal or feudal encroachment and sometimes through such gifts to the church as that with which Alan's father had opened the doors of Bewley Abbey to his younger son. The importance of the family had thus dwindled, but they still retained the old Saxon manor-house, with a couple of farms and a grove large enough to afford pannage to a hundred pigs, Silva de Centum Porcis, as the old family parchments described it. Above all, the owner of the soil could still hold his head high, as the veritable Sockman of Minstead, that is, as holding the land in free sockage, with no feudal superior, and answerable to no man lower than the king. Knowing this, Alan felt some little glow of worldly pride as he looked for the first time upon the land with which so many generations of his ancestors had been associated. He pushed on the quicker, twirling his staff merrily, and looking out at every turn of the path for some sign of the old Saxon residence. He was suddenly arrested, however, by the appearance of a wild-looking fellow, armed with a club, who sprang out from behind a tree and barred his passage. He was a rough, powerful peasant, with a cap and tunic of untanned sheepskin, leather breeches and galligaskins round legs and feet. "'Stand!' he shouted, raising his heavy cudgel to enforce the order. "'Who are you to walk so freely through the wood? "'Whither would you go, and what is your errand?' 
"'Why should I answer your questions, my friend?' said Alan, standing on his guard. "'Because your tongue may save your pate. "'But where have I looked upon your face before?' "'No longer ago than last night at the Pied Merlin,' the clerk answered, "'recognizing the escaped serf who had been so outspoken as to his wrongs. "'By the Virgin, yes! "'You were the little clerk who sat so mum in the corner, "'and then cried fie on the gleeman. "'What hast in the scrip?' Nought of any price. How can I tell that, clerk? Let me see it. Not I. Fool! I could pull you limb from limb like a pullet. What would you have? Hast forgot that we are alone, far from all men? How can your clerkship help you? Wouldst lose a scrip and life, too? I will part with neither without fight. A fight, quotha! A fight betwixt spurred cock and new-hatched chicken! thy fighting days may soon be over. Hadst asked me in the name of charity, I would have given freely, cried Ellen. As it stands, not one farthing shall you have with my free will, and when I see my brother, the Sockman of Minstead, he will raise hue and cry from vill to vill, from hundred to hundred, until you are taken as a common robber and scourge to the country. The outlaw sank his club. The Sockman's brother, he gasped. Now, by the keys of Peter, I had rather that hand withered and tongue was palsied ere I had struck or miscalled you. If you are the Sockman's brother, you are one of the right side, I warrant, for all your clerkly dress. His brother I am, said Alan. But if I were not, is that reason why you should molest me on the king's ground? I give not the pip of an apple for king or for noble, cried the serf passionately. Ill have I had from them, and ill I shall repay them. I am a good friend to my friends, and by the virgin an evil foeman to my foes. And therefore the worst of foemen to thyself, said Alan. But I pray you, since you seem to know him, to point out to me the shortest path to my brother's house. The serf was about to reply, when the clear ringing call of a bugle burst from the wood close behind them, and Alan caught sight for an instant of the dun side and white breast of a lordly stag glancing swiftly betwixt the distant tree-trunks. A minute later came the shaggy deer-hounds, a dozen or fourteen of them, running on a hot scent, with nose to earth and tail in air. As he streamed past, the silent forest around broke suddenly into loud life, with galloping of hooves, crackling of brushwood, and the short, sharp cries of the hunters. Close behind the pack rode a fourier and a yeoman pricker, whooping on the laggards and encouraging the leaders, in the shrill half-French jargon, which was the language of venery and woodcraft. Alan was still gazing after them, listening to the loud, Hike a Bayard! Hike a Pommers! Hike a Lebrit! with which they called upon their favourite hounds when a group of horsemen crashed out through the underwood at the very spot where the serf and he were standing. The one who led was a man between fifty and sixty years of age, war-worn and weather-beaten, with a broad, thoughtful forehead, and eyes which shone brightly from under his fierce and overhung brows. His beard, streaked thickly with grey, bristled forward from his chin, and spoke of a passionate nature, while the long, finely-cut face and firm mouth marked the leader of men. His figure was erect and soldierly, and he rode his horse with the careless grace of a man whose life had been spent in the saddle. In common garb his masterful face and flashing eye would have marked him as one who was born to rule, 
but now, with his silken tunic powdered with gold fleur-de-lis, his velvet mantle lined with the royal miniver, and the lions of England stamped in silver upon his harness, none could fail to recognize the noble Edward, most warlike and powerful of all the long line of fighting monarchs who had ruled the Anglo-Norman race. Alan doffed hat and bowed head at the sight of him, but the serf folded his hands and leaned them upon his cudgel, looking with little love at the knot of nobles and knights-in-waiting who rode behind the king. "'Ha!' cried Edward, reining up for an instant his powerful black steed. "'Le serf est pas? Non? Ici brocas. Tu parles anglais.' "'The dear clowns!' said a hard-visaged, swarthy-faced man, who rode at the king's elbow. "'If you have headed it back, it is as much as your ears are worth.' "'It passed by the blighted beach there,' said Alan, pointing, "'and the hounds were hard at its heels.' "'It is well,' cried Edward, still speaking in French, "'for though he could understand English, "'he had never learned to express himself "'in so barbarous and unpolished a tongue. "'By my faith, sirs,' he continued, "'half turning in his saddle to address his escort, "'unless my woodcraft is sadly at fault, "'it is a stag of six tines, "'and the finest that we have roused this journey. "'A golden St. Hubert to the man "'who is the first to sound the mort.' "'He shook his bridle as he spoke, "'and thundered away, "'his knights lying low upon their horses, "'and galloping as hard as whip and spur would drive them, "'in the hope of winning the king's prize. "'Away they drove, down the long green glade, "'bay horses, black and grey, Riders clad in every shade of velvet, fur, or silk, with glint of brazen horn and flash of knife and spear. One only lingered, the black-browed Baron Brocas, who, making a gombard which brought him within arm sweep of the serf, slashed him across the face with his riding-whip. "'Doff, dog, doff!' he hissed. "'When a monarch deigns to lower his eyes to such as you!' Then spurred through the underwood and was gone, with a gleam of steel shoes and a flatter of dead leaves." The villain took the blow without wince or cry, as one to whom stripes are a birthright and an inheritance. His eyes flashed, however, and he shook his bony hand with a fierce, wild gesture after the retreating figure. "'Black hound of Gascony!' he muttered. "'Evil the day that you and those like you set foot in free England! I know thy kennel of Rochecourt. The night will come when I may do to thee and thine what you and your class have wrought upon mine and me. May God smite me if I fail to smite thee, thou French robber, with thy wife and thy child and all that is under thy castle roof. Forbear, cried Alan, mix not God's name with these unhallowed threats. And yet it was a coward's blow, and one to stir the blood and loose the tongue of the most peaceful. Let me find some soothing simples, and lay them on the wheel to draw the sting. Nay, there is but one thing that can draw the sting, and that the future may bring to me. But, Clark, if you would see your brother, you must on, for there is a meeting to-day, and his merry men will await him, ere the shadows turn from west to east. I pray you not hold him back, for it would be an evil thing if all the stout lads were there, and the leader are missing. I would come with you, but sooth to say I am stationed here, and may not move." The path over yonder, betwixt the oak and the thorn, should bring you out into his nether field. Alan lost no time in following the directions of the wild, masterless man, whom he left among the trees where he had found him. 
his heart was the heavier for the encounter, not only because all bitterness and wrath were abhorrent to his gentle nature, but also because it disturbed him to hear his brother spoken of as though he were a chief of outlaws or the leader of a party against the state. Indeed, of all the things which he had yet seen in the world to surprise him, there was none more strange than the hate which class appeared to bear to class. The talk of labourer, woodman, and villain in the inn had all pointed to the widespread mutiny, and now his brother's name was spoken of as though he were the very centre of the universal discontent. In good truth the commons throughout the length and breadth of the land were heart-weary of this fine game of chivalry which had been played so long at their expense. So long as knight and baron were a strength and a guard to the kingdom, they might be endured, but now, when all men knew that the great battles in France had been won by English yeomen and Welsh stabbers, warlike fame, the only fame to which his class has ever aspired, appeared to have deserted the plate-clad horsemen. The sports of the lists had done much in days gone by to impress the minds of the people, but the plumed and unwieldy champion was no longer an object either of fear or of reverence to men whose fathers and brothers had shot into the press at Cressy or Poitiers, and seen the proudest chivalry in the world unable to make head against the weapons of disciplined peasants. Power had changed hands. The protector had become the protected, and the whole fabric of the feudal system was tottering to a fall. Hence the fierce mutterings of the lower classes, and the constant discontent breaking out into local tumult and outrage, and culminating, some years later, in the great rising of Tyler. What Alan saw and wondered at in Hampshire would have appealed equally to the traveller in any other English county, from the Channel to the marches of Scotland. He was following the track, his misgivings increasing with every step which took him nearer to that home which he had never seen, when, of a sudden, the trees began to thin, and the sward to spread out across to a broad green lawn, where five crows lay in the sunshine and droves of black swine wandered unchecked. A brown forest stream swirled down the centre of this clearing, with a rude bridge flung across it, and on the other side was a second field sloping up to a long, low-lying wooden house with thatched roof and open squares for windows. Alan gazed across at it, with flushed cheeks and sparkling eyes, for this, he knew, must be the home of his father's. A wreath of blue smoke floated up through a hole in the thatch, and was the only sign of life in the place, save a great black hound which lay sleeping unchained to the doorpost. In the yellow shimmer of the autumn sunshine it lay as peacefully and as still as he had oft pictured it to himself in his dreams. He was roused, however, from his pleasant reverie, by the sound of voices, and two people emerged from the forest some little way to his right, and moved across the field, in the direction of the bridge. The one was a man with a yellow flowing beard, and very long hair of the same tint drooping over his shoulders. His dress of good Norwich cloth, and his assured bearing, marked him as a man of position, while the sombre hue of his clothes, and the absence of all ornament, contrasted with the flash and glitter which had marked the king's retinue. By his side walked a woman, tall and slight and dark, with lithe, graceful figure and clear-cut, composed features. Her jet-black hair was gathered back under her light pink coif, her head poised proudly upon her neck, and her step long and springy, like that of some wild, tireless woodland creature. 
She held her left hand in front of her, covered with a red velvet glove, and on the wrist a little brown falcon, very fluffy and bedraggled, which she smoothed and fondled as she walked. As she came out into the sunshine, Alan noticed that her light gown, slashed with pink, was all stained with earth and moss upon one side from shoulder to hem. He stood in the shadow of an oak, staring at her with parted lips, for this woman seemed to him to be the most beautiful and graceful creature that mind could conceive of. Such had he imagined the angels, and such he had tried to paint them in the Bewley missiles, but here there was something human, were it only in the battered hawk and discoloured dress, which sent a tingle and a thrill through his nerves, such as no dream of radiant and stainless spirit had ever yet been able to conjure up. Good, quiet, uncomplaining Mother Nature, long slighted and miscalled, still bides her time and draws to her bosom the most errant of her children. The two walked swiftly across the meadow to the narrow bridge, he in front and she a pace or two behind. There they paused, and stood for a few minutes, face to face, talking earnestly. Alan had read and heard of love and of lovers. Such were these, doubtless, this golden-bearded man and the fair damsel with the cold, proud face. Why else should they wander together in the woods, or be so lost in talk by rustic streams? And yet, as he watched, uncertain whether to advance from the cover or to choose some other path to the house, he soon came to doubt the truth of this first conjecture. The man stood tall and square, blocking the entrance to the bridge, and throwing out his hands as he spoke in a wild, eager fashion, while the deep tones of his stormy voice rose at times into accents of menace and anger. She stood fearlessly in front of him, still stroking her bird, but twice she threw a swift, questioning glance over her shoulder, as one who is in search of aid. So moved was the young clerk by these mute appeals, that he came forth from the trees, and crossed the meadow, uncertain what to do, and yet loath to hold back from one who might need his aid. So intent were they upon each other, that neither took notice of his approach, until, when he was close upon them, the man threw his arm roughly round the damsel's waist, and drew her towards him, she straining her lithe, supple figure away, and striking fiercely at him, while the hooded hawk screamed with ruffled wings, and pecked blindly in its mistress's defence. Bird and maid, however, had but little chance against their assailant, who, laughing loudly, caught her wrist in one hand, while he drew her towards him with the other. "'The best rose has ever the longest thorns,' said he. "'Quiet, little one, or you may do yourself a hurt. You must pay Saxon toll on Saxon land, my proud Maud, for all your airs and graces.' "'You boar!' she hissed. "'You base underbred clod! Is this your care and your hospitality?' I would rather wed a branded serf from my father's fields. Leave go, I say. Ah, good youth, heaven has sent you. Make him loose me. By the honour of your mother, I pray you to stand by me, and to make this knave loose me. Stand by you I will, and that blithely, said Alan. Surely, sir, you should take shame to hold the damsel against her will. The man turned a face upon him which was lion-like in its strength and in its wrath. With his tangle of golden hair, his fierce blue eyes and his large, well-marked features, he was the most comely man whom Alan had ever seen, and yet there was something so sinister and so fell in his expression that child or beast might well have shrunk from him. His brows were drawn, his cheek flushed, and there was a mad sparkle in his eyes which spoke of a wild, untamable nature. 
"'Young fool!' he cried, holding the woman still to his side, though every line of her shrinking feature spoke her abhorrence. "'Do you keep your spoon in your own broth? I read you to go on your way, lest worse befall you. This little wench has come with me, and with me she shall bide.' "'Liar!' cried the woman, and, stooping her head, she suddenly bit fiercely into the broad brown hand which held her. He whipped it back with an oath, while she tore herself free and slipped behind Alan, cowering up against him like the trembling leveret who sees the falcon poising for the swoop above him. "'Stand off my land!' the man said fiercely, heedless of the blood which trickled freely from his fingers. "'What have you to do here? By your dress you should be one of those cursed clerks who overrun the land like vile rats, poking and prying into other man's concerns, too catliff to fight, yet too lazy to work. By the rood, if I had my will upon ye, I should nail you upon the abbey doors, as they hang vermin before their holes. Art neither man nor woman, young shaveling. Get thee back to thy fellows, ere I lay hands upon you, for your foot is on my land, and I may slay you as a common drawlatch. Is this your land, then? gasped Alan. Would you dispute it, dog? Would ye wish by trick or quibble to juggle me out of these last acres? No, base-born knave, that you have dared this day to stand in the path of one whose race have been the advisers of kings and the leaders of hosts, ere ever this vile crew of Norman robbers came into the land, or such half-blood hounds as you were let loose to preach that the thief should have his booty, and the honest man should sin if he strove to win back his own. You are the Sockman of Minstead. That am I, and the son of Edric the Sockman, of the pure blood of Godfrey the Thane, by the only daughter of the house of Aluric, whose forefathers held the white horse banner at the fatal fight where our shield was broken and our sword shivered. I tell you, Clark, that my folk held this land from Bramshaw Wood to the Ringwood Road, and by the soul of my father it will be a strange thing if I am to be bearded upon the little that is left of it. Be gone, I say, and meddle not with my affair. If you leave me now, whispered the woman, then shame for ever upon your manhood. Surely, sir, said Alan, speaking in as persuasive and soothing a way as he could, if your birth is gentle, there is the more reason that your manner should be gentle too. I am well persuaded that you did but jest with this lady, and that you will now permit her to leave your land either alone or with me as a guide, if she should need one, through the wood. As to birth, it does not become me to boast, and there is sooth in what you say as to the unworthiness of clerks, but it is none the less true that I am as well born as you. "'Dog!' cried the furious Sockman. "'There is no man in the South who can say as much.' "'Yet can I,' said Alan, smiling, "'for indeed I also am the son of Edric the Sockman, of the pure blood of Godfrey the Thane, by the only daughter of Aluric of Brockenhurst. "'Surely, dear brother,' he continued, holding out his hand, you have a warmer greeting than this for me. There are but two boughs left upon this old, old Saxon trunk. His elder brother dashed his hand aside with an oath, while an expression of malignant hatred passed over his passion-drawn features. You are the young cub of Bewley, then, said he. I might have known it by the sleek face and the slavish manner, too monk-ridden and craven in spirit to answer back a rough word. Thy father, Shaveling, with all his faults, had a man's heart, and there were few who could look him in the eyes on the day of his anger. But you, look there, rat, on yonder field where the cows graze, and on that other beyond, 
and on the orchard hard by the church. Do you know that all these were squeezed out of your dying father by greedy priests, to pay for your upbringing in the cloisters? I, the Sockman, am shorn of my lands that you may snivel Latin and eat bread for which you never did a hand's turn. You robbed me first, and now you would come preaching and whining in search, mayhap, of another field or two for your priestly friends. Knave! My dogs shall be set upon you. But meanwhile stand out of the path, and stop me at your peril. As he spoke, he rushed forward, and throwing the lad to one side, caught the woman's wrist. Alan, however, as active as a young deer-hound, sprang to her aid, and seized her by the other arm, raising his iron-shod staff as he did so. "'You may say what you will to me,' he said, between his clenched teeth. "'It may be no better than I deserve. But, brother or no, I swear by my hopes of salvation that I will break your arm if you do not leave hold of the maid.' There was a ring in his voice and a flash in his eyes, which promised that the blow would follow quick at the heels of the word. For a moment the blood of the long line of hot-headed thanes was too strong for the soft whisperings of the doctrine of meekness and mercy. He was conscious of a fierce, wild thrill through his nerves, and a throb of mad gladness in his heart, as his real human self burst for an instant the bonds of custom and of teaching which had held it so long. The Sockman sprang back, looking to left and to right for some stick or stone which might serve him for a weapon, but finding none, he turned and ran at the top of his speed for the house, blowing the while upon a shrill whistle. "'Come!' gasped the woman. "'Fly, friend, ere he come back.' "'Nay, let him come,' cried Alan. "'I shall not budge a foot for him or his dogs.' "'Come, come!' she cried, tugging at his arm. "'I know the man. He will kill you. Come for the virgin's sake, or for my sake, for I cannot go and leave you here.' "'Come, then,' said he, and they ran together to the cover of the woods. As they gained the edge of the brushwood, Alan, looking back, saw his brother come running out of the house again, with the sun gleaming upon his hair and his beard. He held something which flashed in his right hand, and he stooped at the threshold to unloose the black hound. "'This way,' the woman whispered in low, eager voice, "'through the bushes to that forked ash. Do not heed me. I can run as fast as you, I trow. Now into the stream, right in, over ankles, to throw the dog off, though I think it is but a common cur like its master.' As she spoke, she sprang herself into the shallow stream, and ran swiftly up the centre of it, with the brown water bubbling over her feet, and her hand outstretched towards the clinging branches of bramble or sapling. Alan followed close at her heels, with his mind in a whirl at this black welcome, and sudden shifting of all his plans and hopes. Yet, grave as were his thoughts, they would still turn to wonder as he looked at the twinkling feet of his guide, and saw her lithe figure bend this way and that, dipping under boughs, springing over stones, with a lightness and ease which made it no small task for him to keep up with her. At last, when he was almost out of breath, she suddenly threw herself down upon a mossy bank, between two holly-bushes, and looked ruefully at her own dripping feet and bedraggled skirt. "'Holy Mary!' said she. "'What shall I do? Mother will keep me to my chamber for a month, and make me work at the tapestry of the nine bold knights.' She promised as much last week when I fell into Wilverley Bog, and yet she knows I cannot abide needlework. Alan, still standing in the stream, glanced down at the graceful pink-and-white figure, the curve of raven-black hair, and the proud, sensitive face, which looked up frankly and confidingly at his own. 
we had best on, he said. He may yet overtake us. Not so. We are well off his land now. Nor can he tell in this great wood which way we have taken. But you, you had him at your mercy. Why did you not kill him? Kill him? My brother? And why not? With a quick gleam of her white teeth, he would have killed you. I know him, and I read it in his eyes. Had I had your staff, I would have tried. Aye, and done it, too. She shook her clenched white hand as she spoke, and her lips tightened ominously. "'I am already sad in heart for what I have done,' said he, sitting down on the bank, and sinking his face into his hands. "'God help me! All that is worst in me seemed to come uppermost. Another instant, and I had smitten him. The son of my own mother, the man whom I had longed to take to my heart. Alas, that I should be so weak!' "'Weak!' she exclaimed raising her black eyebrows. I do not think that even my father himself, who is a hard judge of manhood, would call you that. But it is, as you may think, sir, a very pleasant thing for me to hear that you are grieved at what you have done, and I can but read that we should go back together, and you should make your peace with the sockman by handing back your prisoner. It is a sad thing that so small a thing as a woman should come between two who are of the one blood. Simple, Alan opened his eyes at this little spurt of feminine bitterness. "'Nay, lady,' said he, "'that were worst of all. What man could be so catliff and thrall as to fail you at your need? I have turned my brother against me, and now, alas, I appear to have given you offence also with my clumsy tongue. But, indeed, lady, I am torn both ways, and can scarcely grasp in my mind what it is that has befallen.' "'Nor can I marvel at that,' said she, with a little tinkling laugh. You came in, as the knight does, in the jongleur's romances, between dragon and damsel, with small time for the asking of questions. Come, she went on, springing to her feet, and smoothing down her rumpled frock. Let us walk through the shore together, and we may come upon Bertrand with the horses. If poor Troubadour has not cast a shoe, we shall not have had this trouble. Nay, I must have your arm, for, though I speak lightly, now that all is happily over, I am as frightened as my brave Roland. See how his chest heaves, and his dear feathers all awry. The little knight who would not have his lady mishandled. So she prattled on to her hawk, while Alan walked by her side, stealing a glance from time to time at this queenly and wayward woman. In silence they wandered together over the velvet turf and on through the broad minstead woods, where the old lichen-draped beeches threw their circles of black shadow upon the sunlit sward. "'You have no wish, then, to hear my story?' said she, at last. "'If it pleases you to tell it me,' he answered. "'Oh!' she cried, tossing her head. "'If it is of so little interest to you, we'd best let it bide.' "'Nay, nay,' he said eagerly, "'I would fain hear it. "'You have a right to know it if you have lost a brother's favour through it. "'And yet—well, uh, you are, as I understand, a clerk, "'so I must think of you as one step further in orders "'and make you my father confessor.' Know, then, that this man has been a suitor for my hand, less, as I think, for my own sweet sake, than because he hath ambition, and had it on his mind that he might prove his fortunes by dipping into my father's strong-box, though the virgin knows he would have found little enough therein. My father, however, is a proud man, a gallant knight and tried soldier of the oldest blood, to whom this man's churlish birth and low descent Oh, lack-a-day! I had forgot that he was of the same strain as yourself. 
"'Nay, trouble not for that,' said Alan. "'We are all from good mother Eve.' "'Streams may spring from one source, and yet some be clear and some be foul,' quoth she quickly. "'But to be brief over the matter, my father would have none of his wooing, nor in sooth would I. "'On that he swore a vow against us, and he is known to be a perilous man, with many outlaws and others at his back. My father forbade that I should hawk or hunt in any part of the wood.' to the north of the Christchurch road. As it chanced, however, this morning, my little Roland here was loosed at a strong-winged heron, and Page Bertrand and I rode on, with no thoughts but for the sport, until we found ourselves in Minstead Woods. Small harm then, but that my horse Troubadour trod with a tender foot upon a sharp stick, rearing and throwing me to the ground. See my gown! Oh, the third I have befouled within the week! Woe worth me when Agatha the tie-woman sets eyes upon it. "'And what then, lady?' asked Alan. "'Why, then away ran Troubadour, for belike I spurred him in falling, and Bertrand rode after him as hard as hoofs could bear him. When I rose, there was the sockman himself by my side, with the news that I was on his land, but with so many courteous words besides, and such gallant bearing that he prevailed upon me to come to his house for shelter, there to wait until the page return. By the grace of the Virgin and the help of my patron St. Magdalen, I stopped short ere I reached his door, though, as you saw, he strove to hale me up to it. And then, ah, she shivered and chattered like one in an ague fit. What is it? cried Alan, looking about in alarm. Oh, nothing, friend, nothing. I was but thinking how I bit into his hand. Sooner would I bite living toad or poisoned snake. Ooh, I shall loathe my lips for ever. But you, how brave you were, and how quick! How meek for yourself, and how bold for a stranger! If I were a man, I should wish to do what you had done. It, it was a, a small thing, he answered, with a tingle of pleasure at those sweet words of praise. But you, what will you do? There is a great oak near here, and I think that Bertrand will bring the horses there, for it is an old hunting tryst of ours. Then hay for home, and no more hawking to-day. A twelve-mile gallop will dry feet and skirt. But your father? Not one word shall I tell him. You do not know him, but I can tell you he is not a man to disobey as I have disobeyed him. He would avenge me, it is true, but it is not to him that I shall look for vengeance. Some day, perchance, in joust or in tourney, a knight may wish to wear my colours, and then I shall tell him that if he does indeed crave my favour, there is wrong unredressed, and the wronger is the sockman of Minstead. So my knight shall find a venture such as bold knights love, and my debt shall be paid, my father none the wiser, and one rogue the less in the world. Say, is it not a brave plan? Nay, lady. It is a thought which is unworthy of you. How can such as you speak of violence and of vengeance? Are none to be gentle and kind, none to be piteous and forgiving? Alas, it is a hard, cruel world, and I would that I had never left my abbey cell. To hear such words from your lips is as though I heard an angel of grace preaching the devil's own creed. She started from him as a young colt who first feels the bit, Gramercy for your reed, young sir, she said, with a little curtsy. As I understand your words, you are grieving that you ever met me, and look upon me as a preaching devil. Why, 
My father is a bitter man when he is wroth, but hath never called me such a name as that. It may be his right and duty, but certes it is none of thine. So it would be best, since you think so lowly of me, that you should take this path to the left, while I keep on upon this one, for it is clear that I can be no fit companion for you. So saying, with downcast lids and a dignity, which was somewhat marred by her bedraggled skirt, she swept off down the muddy track, leaving Alan standing, staring ruefully after her. He waited in vain for some backward glance or sign of relenting, but she walked on with a rigid neck until her dress was only a white flutter among the leaves. Then, with sunken head and a heavy heart, he plodded wearily down the other path, wroth with himself for the rude and uncouth tongue which had given offence where so little was intended. He had gone some way, lost in doubt and in self-reproach, his mind all tremulous, with a thousand new-found thoughts and fears and wonderments, when of a sudden there was a light rustle of the leaves behind him, and, glancing round, there was this graceful, swift-footed creature, treading in his very shadow, with her proud head bowed, even as his was, the picture of humility and repentance. "'I shall not vex you, nor even speak,' she said but I would fain keep with you while we are in the wood. Nay, you cannot vex me, he answered, all warm again at the very sight of her. It was my rough words which vexed you, but I have been thrown among men all my life, and indeed, with all the will, I scarce know how to temper my speech to a lady's ear. Then unsay it, cried she quickly, say that I was right to wish to have vengeance on the sockman. Nay, I cannot do that, he answered gravely. "'Then who is ungentle and unkind now?' she cried in triumph. "'How stern and how cold you are for one so young! "'Art surely no mere clerk, but bishop or cardinal at the least. "'Shouldst have crozier for staff and mitre for cap. "'Well, well, for your sake I will forgive the sockman, "'and take vengeance on none but on my own willful self, "'who must needs run into danger's path. "'So, will that please you, sir?' "'There spoke your true self,' said he and you will find more pleasure in such forgiveness than in any vengeance. She shook her head, as if by no means assured of it, and then, with a sudden little cry, which had more of surprise than of joy in it, Here is Bertrand with the horses. Down the glade there came a little green-clad page, with laughing eyes and long curls floating behind him. He sat perched on a high bay horse, and held on to the bridle of a spirited black palfrey, the hides of both glistening from a long run. "'I have sought you everywhere, dear Lady Maud,' said he, in a piping voice, springing down from his horse, and holding the stirrup. Troubadour galloped as far as Holm Hill ere I could catch him. I trust that you have had no hurt or scathe.' He shot a questioning glance at Alan as he spoke. "'No, Bertrand,' said she, "'thanks to this courteous stranger.' "'And now, sir,' she continued, springing into her saddle, "'it is not fit that I leave you without a word more.' Clark or no, you have acted this day as becomes a true knight. King Arthur and all his table could not have done more. It may be that, as some small return, my father or his kin may have power to advance your interest. He is not rich, but he is honoured, and hath great friends. Tell me what is your purpose, and see if he may not aid it. Alas, lady, I have no purpose. I have but two friends in the world, and they have gone to Christchurch where it is likely I shall join them. And where in Christchurch? At the castle which is held by the brave knight Sir Nigel Loring, 
constable to the Earl of Salisbury. To his surprise she burst out a-laughing, and, spurring her palfrey, dashed off down the glade, with her page riding behind her. Not one word did she say, but as she vanished amid the trees, she half turned in her saddle, and waved a last greeting. A long time he stood, half hoping that she might again come back to him, but the thud of the hoofs had died away, and there was no sound in all the woods but the gentle rustle and dropping of the leaves. At last he turned away and made his way back to the high road, another person from the light-hearted boy who had left it a short three hours before. End of chapter 9